0: Welcome to the podcast from the Sunday Night Service at New Life Church. The Sunday Night Service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. I know you think this is a series that never ends, but we are in it for one more week uh, that's next week. We've got tonight and next week. And uh, we've been talking about the supernatural, how God works, how God speaks to us. And, you know, one of the things that we, we've found to be useful to remind ourselves of every week is we're not talking about a God who's distant, a God who's sort of up in heaven, far away, looking down and saying, oh, well, hey, you know, good luck with you guys. What are you doing down there? Are you, are you following? Are you listening? Are you banging? Hope you get it right. And, you know, I came down to show you the way, you know, and I think there's, there's this way to sort of have this impression that Jesus comes down and shows us how we're supposed to live and then disappears and says, good luck, you know. But it's far, far different than that, that the God that we are serving, the God that we belong to, is a God that from the very beginning began, uh, wanted to be intimately involved with his creation. This was a God who says to Adam, after Adam rebels against him, Adam, where are you? The God who comes looking the God who's always speaking, the God who speaks to us even through creation, that creation declares His glory, and there's a way that God has revealed Himself. He's He's the kind of God that is self-revealing, uh, and, and that's interesting because if you think about this and you say, "Well, okay, so there's a God, and so He's you know somewhere else, and all this stuff, and how are we supposed to know Him if He's Creator and we're the created?" Well, the good news is this God is a God that wants to break in. Indeed, He already has and always does. This is a God who is always present with us, that His sphere is overlapping to ours. And when He speaks, it's an amazing thing. And it's interesting, even in the Old Testament scriptures, the first, the nation that He called Israel was very aware of how uh, unique it was that their God was a God who spoke you, you've maybe come across different passages where the prophets sort of kind of tease the other nations and say, oh, so is that block of wood going to talk to you anytime soon? Or how's that working out for you? And uh, maybe your God's not answering because he's gone away on a journey, you know, Elijah says, which is this euphemism for he's gone to the bathroom, you know, so there's all this taunting and the Israelites are pretty, they're pretty proud of the fact that their God is a God who speaks. And we as Christians today, we think, okay, well, this is great. You know, we've got the Bible and we've got the Bible and all these different versions and translations. And so, of course, he's speaking to us. This morning, uh, Pastor Aaron Stern did a great job talking to the, t- the whole church this morning about the idea of being led by the Holy Spirit and how that is an aspect of living supernaturally. And one of the things he mentioned was, was saying, okay, one of the ways we can sense what the Holy Spirit is saying is by making sense of Scripture. And he he unpacked it a little bit and sort of left it there. And I wanted for us tonight to take our whole time together and just focus in on that. How do we unpack Scripture? Because the interesting thing is, every Christian, to some degree, would say, yes, we think the Bible's authoritative, and we think the Bible is sort of the way to go, and we think the Bible tells us everything that we need to know Well then why is there so much disagreement sometimes about what the Bible says and is it okay that there is that disagreement and how is it then that we we claim to have this one book that we all live by and yet there's certain things where we kind of have different angles on it and is that okay, should we be troubled by that or does that make us lose all hope? Uh, If you're new to the church you might be thinking, okay, wait a second, I like the Jesus stuff, this is cool, but what's with the church? What's with all the disagreements and the denominations and all this stuff? And that could make you say, well, is anything, is any of this reliable? Is any of this trustworthy? Can we really build on this? Or is it all, you know, sort of, well, your guess is as good as mine and that's my opinion. And after all, doesn't it just boil down to personal preference? Is that true? No, one person says. But how then should we navigate this? How do we move forward? And I I thought it might be helpful as we were beginning tonight to talk about some common um, misconceptions or maybe common mistreatments, mishandlings of uh, the the Scriptures, the Word of God. I think one of the things we tend to, to view the Bible as is, oh, the Bible is a rule book. We say, well, well, look, this is the rules, you know, they, if you want to know how you're supposed to live, just read this cover to cover, there's, there's lots of rules in here, and maybe that makes you want to read it, you know, if you're the sort of person that wants, to, you know, that you read an instruction manual every time you get a new device or something, or if you're the person that wants to do everything the teacher has said, then that's exciting to you, ooh, the Bible's a rule book, can't wait to find out all the rules, what am I supposed to do, where, where can I check off the stuff that I've done, you know. But for a lot of us, maybe the rest of us, we're sort of like rule book, no thanks. And this approach to scripture certainly it is true that the Bible contains commands. They are commands in there. They're not suggestions. There are the 10 commandments. You know, there are lists in there. There are things in there that God expects of us. But are we to approach all of scripture like a rule book? I think if we do that, we're stuck. See, I think I think non-believers have heard us talk about scripture as if it's a rule book. And then they've called our bluff. Because they've said, really, you think the Bible's a rule book? You think it's the Word of God, and the Word of God means that it's a rule book? Well, then how is it you have all these rules about morality and sexual morality, but you don't follow the rules about not eating shrimp? Aha! Several months ago in the fall, our, our um, local Gazette writer, I think his name's Mark Barna, not to be confused with the other Barna, the pollster, but Mark did an article in the Gazette about how Christians cherry pick scriptures, he says. He says, Christians are guilty when it comes to the political season. They have all the verses that they can, you know, you know, add to their campaign and add to their cause and say, well, this is why we believe against this and this is why we believe that. And, and, and Mark said, you're, you're lying because you like those pastors, but you don't like these other pastors. And how is it you follow that, but you don't follow dietary restrictions and all this stuff? And the surprising thing, is it's a fair question, right? The surprising thing was he found very few people who are able to give him an intelligent response to say, well, we don't quite believe, we believe the Bible has rules, but it's not one big rule book. But I think they have that impression of us because we've acted like that, that we sort of think the Bible is kind of the Supreme Court of Appeals and there's a disagreement and we say, well, let's just go see what the Bible says, you know, and two people can't agree and say, well, let's just go consult the rule. It's like, it's like two toddlers playing a game of something, and they can't figure out who's right, and say, so well, let's just go ask at mom and dad, or let's just go see the rule book, right? We can't figure out if you're supposed to collect $200 when you pass go, and, or not, you know, how exactly does this work, and if you have one railway station, is that, you know, anyway, <laughs> let's just consult the rule book, and that's what the Bible has become, it's this thing that we love, oh, it's the word of God, we put it on a shelf, and then we say, well, let's just consult the rule book whenever we want to win an argument. That's obnoxious, isn't it? And it also gets us in trouble because it's certainly not meant to be treated that way. The other approach I think we fall into is to say, well, the Bible's a textbook, it's got all the information you ever wanted to know about God. Really? Where's the information about God when I'm reading a genealogy? Where's that info? And you say, well, no, no, this is a textbook, you know, this, if, you, if you would just memorize this, then you would know everything there is to know. But most of us recognize, if you've tried reading the scriptures, that they don't begin chapter 1, the omniscience of God. Chapter 2, the omnipotence of God. Chapter 3, what those words mean. No, it doesn't open up like that. And we wish that it would sometimes. Well, why, why can't it be like a textbook? And I think we are a generation, a culture, so shaped by education. I love education. I'm totally 100% for it. But if we reduce the Bible to just being this textbook that we study, then all we try to get out of it is data and information. But some of it seems like obscure data and information. You may find yourself trying to memorize these things and then say, now, why am I doing this so I can win Bible trivia again at this year's Christmas party? I mean, like, why, why am I doing this again? It's more than a textbook. The other uh, approach is to kind of treat the Bible like a cookbook. This is my favorite. It's a cookbook, and we're looking for recipes for the good life, you know, Well, listen, if you take this verse from Proverbs and then this verse from Malachi and then this verse from Deuteronomy and you add them together and you bake it for an hour, voila, you'll have the good life. And the Bible is sort of this cookbook. And look, I'm all for memory verses. I understand that some verses are better on your refrigerator than others. I get that. But if our only knowledge of Scripture is Christian refrigerator magnets, then we've tried, we really we're guilty of this cookbook approach. Or I'll take a a, a a dash of your promises, uh, a a good story about Jesus doing something, mix it all together and say, here we go. But that lands us in trouble too because what about when there's things that seem to contradict and even side-by-side verses, listen to Proverbs 26 verse 4, it says, do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like him yourself. Okay, so don't answer a fool. That's my formula for life. Oh, wait, verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. What what am I supposed to do? Do I bake it at 350 or at 400? Do I put two eggs or three eggs? I mean, where's the recipe here? So, you mean I can't treat the Bible like that? No. So what is it then? If it's not a rule book and it's not a textbook and it's not a cookbook, what is it? What are we supposed to do with the scriptures? I would like to suggest tonight that the the number one, the overarching approach that we've got to take to the scriptures is to see it as story. I don't mean fantasy. I don't mean fairy tale. I don't mean made up things. I mean narrative as in story. Now, if you think of the Bible that way, you might read it a little bit differently. Because chances are you didn't do your reading this weekend this way. You didn't pick up a John Grisham novel and read chapter 19, I think. I'll start there. And then put that one down and then pick up, you know, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe and say, uh, let's start in chapter 10. And then go from there and pick up some other novel you're reading. You'd be all jumbled, wouldn't you? you understand, we all understand that if we are to... to, to enter it or treat the scriptures like this one grand story, then there's something about seeing the progression. There's something about understanding what God is trying to convey, even larger than that, what God has started to do from the beginning of creation and even now. I think without that, we kind of lose our bearings, because then we're sort of like, well, all you know is... I love Jesus, Jesus loves me, I'm supposed to read my Bible, so I'll try, and you open it up, and one day it's pretty good, but the next day it's not very good, it's kind of like Russian roulette quiet time, you know? It's like, well, this one was really good, but the lady yesterday's, you really know, just, it's random. But I would like to suggest tonight that if, before we even start to break down some helpful practical things, that we've got to embrace the idea that Scripture is God's story, that it shows us God at work specifically uh, th- th- there've been many people who've suggested phrasing it this way lots of different professors and lots of different s- students of scriptures who said look what if you think of it as a story or a play that unfolds in five acts anybody been to a play recently you know you, usually you, yeah okay you, usually you're falling asleep right around act 2 and then there's intermission like yes you know and then there's act 3 But it's difficult to walk into a play, especially when you don't know the story. And this has happened to me loads of times. I remember the first time I saw uh, Les Mis before the movie came out. Um, Watching the play was a little bit more difficult, you know. And then once the Liam Neeson movie came out, the play really made much more sense because I knew the story. And I think this is what's going to help us is until we understand the story, it's all going to, we're going to get lost here. So I want to to plot this out for the story of God in five acts. It begins with creation, of course. It begins with God saying, let's make men and women, man and woman, to be our image bearers. You know, it's interesting. This theme begins in Genesis of God saying, let's cover the earth with people who reflect our image. That's another way of saying, let the earth be full of the knowledge of the glory of God. That right from the beginning, God's plan was let me make a, a, a people that will reflect me. And in their reflecting of me, they'll be fruitful and multiply until they're all over, until earth itself reflects me. Isn't that beautiful? But then we know that it doesn't, it doesn't go as planned or, 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 or sort of as we think. There's a fall. The image bearers decide to rebel and decide to say, okay, look, we can do this better. We can figure this out better. We can do this on our own. God, we don't want you. We insist on independence. And it's so interesting because these are sort of asides, but every different symbol of man's attempt at independence is there. The the attempt to build Babel is is a symbol of their independence from God. Later on, there's a nation called Babylon, which represents the best that humanity can do as they organize themselves apart from God. All the way in the last book, there's Revelation picking up on all that same language, and it talks about a kind of Babylon, which is humanity at its best organizing itself apart from God. There's that theme of fall. And then there is God saying, okay, let's start with one family, one people, one nation. Let's begin there. And this is helpful, I think, to understand, because when you you understand that God is working with us where we are, then you realize that there's a bit of a progression to this. So he starts with Israel, and he says, okay, guys, let's try something, okay? I know everybody around you is savage, and they kill one another, and they're brutal. Can we try something? Don't murder your brother, okay? Let's just start there, okay? If you're, from, if you're cousins, if you're distant relatives, just don't murder anyone who shares your bloodline. Okay, great. Don't covet. Don't take their property. Don't take any of this stuff. Now, if we didn't know what was coming in the rest of the story, I think this could be confusing because you, you, you and I, as, as Christians, we know the, the latter scenes of the, of the story, and we know that there's this moment where Jesus says, love your enemies and all this stuff. So when we're still in Act 3 the Israel part of the story, it doesn't seem to make sense to us that they're killing lots of other people. Anybody ever wondered about that? Well, how is it they get away with murder, literally? How is it they're doing that? And how, what? Maybe it's because they're part of the story. It's not the full picture yet of what God's like, but God's saying, let me teach you about respecting human life, and let's start with within Israel. Let me teach you about respecting one another and and therefore don't take each other's land. You can go take the Canaanites' land, but you don't take each other's yet. And finally, when we get to Jesus, it opens up. And Jesus says, let me show you what the plan was all along. The plan all along was not to just stop with you. The plan all along, in Genesis 12, God says to Abraham, look, I'm blessing you so that what? You can be a blessing to all nations. Do you know if you read Genesis, there are only a few individuals that God specifically blesses? He blesses Adam and says, Be fruitful, multiply. He blesses Noah after the flood and says kind of the same thing. Then he blesses Abraham. Then he blesses Isaac. Then he blesses Jacob through the man that wrestles with him. You remember that story? From then on, all of those guys start passing on the blessing. Isn't that interesting? That those three guys, three generations, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are the ones that God specifically puts his hand on as if to say, I'm blessing you, I'm starting with you, I'm beginning a nation with you, I'm beginning something here with you. That old call to be an image bearer, that old call to be the blessing, to cover the earth with people who know me, that's coming, that's going to start with you guys. And then they start blessing their sons. And on and on it goes. The trouble is, Israel's not quite a perfect messenger and they aren't able to really live up to this and they don't fully care there's these great moments where other nations come to them like the moment when the Queen of Sheba comes and says Solomon how happy the men must be that stand in your courts and listen to your wisdom all day long but there's certainly very dark moments when they're worshipping other gods and all this stuff and finally Israel as a nation gets torn apart and they get carried off into exile and all this stuff And you're like, oh, well, did God just scrap the plan? Is the story over? Forget that story. Let's start a new one. No. There is one faithful Israelite, the one that all the best Jewish prophets anticipated, just not quite exactly that way. And his name is Jesus. And Jesus steps in and says, hey, guys, you know all of the things that you've been hoping for for your nation, that your nation would do? Guess what? I am it. I am he. I am the one that now will be the light unto the world. I am the one that's going to bring all peoples in, all this stuff. So act four is the glorious moment where Jesus shows up and says, everything in history has been racing up to this point, and now everything is different. And Jesus begins his, he initiates his new people of God. We call it church. And this is where we're living, the new people of God, which one day will include Israel again and all this stuff. But here we are. And so it's helpful when you're reading the scriptures to say, okay, where are we in the story here? If I'm going to park it in Jeremiah for a month and read it through my quiet time, I need to know what's going on in the story. Which act is that in? Oh, it's in Act 3, okay. And what's exactly how, you know, and and it's helpful to understand that. Otherwise, we're saying, I have no idea what this means. And if we take the, you know, the cookbook approach or the, you know, the, the rule book approach, you open Jeremiah, and you're like, well, where are the rules here? I see a lot of strange Prophetic acts and, and are we supposed to go and do this? You know, or, or what is that? How does this mean? What does this mean? And how do we live out of this? And if you read a passage in Jeremiah that says, destruction's coming from the north, are we supposed to say, thank you, Lord, for your nugget of wisdom you gave me today? I think if you understand that Scripture is God's story unfolding, you'll be patient with your quiet times because some days you're just going to read and it's just going to help you enter the story more. May I suggest to you that some days you'll read your Bible and you won't get a precise nugget to apply that day and that that's okay? You know That idea of sort of being reductionistic with the Bible and like I've got to open it and I've got to... Where's my nugget? Come on, God, speak to me. That that idea is a fairly new one that for... Centuries prior, people have understood, look, we first got to catch this big story, got to lose ourselves in this story as it unfolds. And then as we see Jesus, it all starts to make sense. We talked about uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the difference between a puzzle and a mystery. Do you remember this? And a puzzle, if you had this jigsaw puzzle, a puzzle approaching a puzzle is is, you're saying well we're just missing one piece and if i had all the pieces i could finish the puzzle but a mystery is we've got all the pieces we're not missing any pieces we just need to know how to put it together and this is how the new testament writers talk about mystery they talk about it in the sense of look leading up until this point people didn't know how to put the pieces together but now because of jesus jesus is our lens and jesus helps us see how the story of god falls into place Jesus helps us see God at his fullness. The phrase I I want us to kind of maybe think about tonight is this Immerse yourself in the narratives of Scripture before looking for the imperatives. Immerse yourself in the narratives of Scripture before looking for the imperatives. Another way to say that was it would be lose yourself in the story before you start looking for the rules. Oh, I got to find the rules. And I'll say, Lose yourself in the story first see God at work, see God, see God in the broad strokes of his paintbrush, versus, I mean, think about, I think the the lunacy of what we try to do with scripture would be like taking a painting, and like putting it under this microscope, and looking at one little dot of the red, and being like, I'm trying to look for the beauty here, but it's a dot of red, and they're like, someone taps you on the shoulder, dude, dude, yeah, step back, you step back, and you're like, oh, wow, that's why everyone loves Van Gogh. You know, otherwise you're like, I'm studying this little blue swirl, and I don't you know, get that. You know? And I think that's what happens is we start with the Bible, kind of say, well, I want to dig in deep, and I want to find out the Greek word of prophecy is still prophecy, and you're trying to dig deeper and deeper and deeper, but sometimes maybe the place to begin is to begin wider. Look for the, narr- the narratives before you start to look for the imperatives. Of course, when I say that this is story, I don't mean that it's just old stories that are nice and inspirational. I do, we do believe that it is the living Word of God, and we believe there's something powerful that happens when we enter this story and let it enter us, something begins to change us. That, in fact, the same God who was working through those stories begins to work in your story. The miracle of miracles, yes. So please don't mi- miss your what I say when I say story. I want to give us three very practical uh, pieces here um, t- t- to to properly engage this uh, and to make sense of this. Some of you have heard this before. This is an amalgam of lots of different uh, books and teachings out there, from you know from Gordon Fee to loads of others. I'm looking at the great Dr. Todd right here and sweating bullets as I speak but this, I, I know he'd approve uh, and, and so this is sort of maybe a simplification of a lot of different hermeneutics classes and things like that out there but I want you to have it because here's the goal God's goal for his word is not for, for it to just be the property of experts the goal of God's story was not so that it could belong to those who know the original languages and the rest of you step off. No. no at the same time the idea is not to say, well, look, I've got this thing printed in black and white, and now i just got to sit uh, down by the fire and say, Holy Spirit, tell me what this means. He can, and He does. But He often works through us being responsible with it and being diligent with it rather than being magical with it. So I want to give us three things here. You ready? This, is, again, this is going to be another note-taking sort of night, okay? Less inspiration, more uh, information. Okay, Phase 1, you could call this observation. What we're trying to do here when you read a passage, let's say you read something out of uh, Ephesians 1, and you're saying, okay, well, what are we trying to do? The first thing you're trying to do is try to determine what is going on. What's going on in this passage You want to look around, you want to examine it, you want to explore this world. The same way as if you picked up a story, you'd want to say, okay, you know, I started reading A Tale of Two Cities uh, a couple of weeks ago and it took me a little bit to get into it because I'm trying to realize, okay, this was France in what year and before the French Revolution and I don't know, remember much about the French Revolution, but I've got to try to remember or or learn some of those things or some of this is not going to make sense. Fortunately, I have a book with good footnotes, you know, which is like having a good study Bible. The Bible has eternal relevance, but it has historical particularity. What that means is, of course, it, it applies to all of us today, throughout every age, throughout every era of history, but it was written in a particular historical time. So we can't just lift words out of it and say, well, I think this means... We've got to first say, okay, how did this strike them? What was going on when this was written? What's the background here? So here's a few tips. Here's a few po- things that could maybe help. One is if you're reading epistles those those letters in the New Testament if you're reading them, read them all the way through. Or if you're reading a narrative about a particular character, finish it all the way through. Read the entire David story, begin somewhere in 1 Samuel, read it begin where it begins and end where it, read read these stories all the way through. Uh, particularly I think when you when you're reading some of these letters, it's helpful to do it that way. And if you think how It almost makes sense. It's so simple. But if you were to get a letter in the mail from, you know, you, you, you know say a, a, an old friend, well, they don't write letters anymore. Let's say you, your grandparents or someone who's more, not on Facebook, okay? Someone who decides to write you a letter. And you go to the mailbox and you open say so That's not an age slam, okay? And you open and you and you. Holly's grandparents still write her letters, okay? So we open the mailbox and we get this letter and we open it up and it says, Dear Holly and Glenn, I hope you are well. Now what if we folded it up and said, Hmm. I hope you are well. What does that mean? <laughs> I think you could get in some trouble there. It means I hope you're well. I used to hear some preachers on TV take Third John verse 2 where John says, Hey, to all you believers, I hope you're doing well. I hope you prosper even as your soul prospers. It's just a greeting. But I heard lots of TV preachers take that verse and say, you see, God does want to make you rich and healthy. And and that one verse became this foundation of the health and wealth gospel. You see, it's God's will that you prosper. Go out and, you know, it doesn't matter if you have the money, you go out and you put that on your credit card because it's God's will for you to prosper. Or John was writing a letter and it was a standard opening. Hello friends, hope you're well. And it would make more sense if we would, we would read these letters all the way through. You would pick up on certain phrases that these writers use over and over again. you think, oh, I wonder if Paul's making a point here. Usually, yes. You know? Uh, the, the other thing that's, that's helpful is, is um, read before and after your favorite verses. <laughs> I know, this is, this is funny. But, but I love Jeremiah 29, 11. I really do. You know, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you, to give you hope and a future and all that stuff. I love that verse, and it's wonderful on a refrigerator magnet. It really is. But do you know the verses before Jeremiah 29, 11? It's, It's a letter to the nation of Judah as they're being, what? Carried off into exile. It's so ironic to me that people have lifted up verse 11 and sort of started to pray, God, I pray that you, you know, just eliminate hardship from my life. God, your plans are not for harm, but for good. So God, let everything just work out peachy today. Give me a parking spot close to JCPenney today. (laughs) I don't know, maybe. The rest of Jeremiah 29 is God saying, Hey, Judah, I'm sending you, I'm disciplining you. I intend to make you obedient and I intend to refine your heart. And part of how I'm going to refine your heart is I'm going to let you be carried off by the Babylonians. And it's going to be absolutely miserable. You're going to hate your life there. You're going to weep. Psalm 137 says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and we wept. This is going to be awful. But I want you to know that that's not the end. I want you to know that I'm going to bring you back. I want you to know that my long-term plan for you is always for your good, even when you don't realize it. And so all of a sudden, oh, we read before and after our favorite verses, and it's like, oh, there's more to this, isn't there? Yes. Yes, there is. Some helpful questions to ask in the observation phase is, what was the occasion? What was the purpose? What was going on? What was the historical setting? What was the cultural meaning? And some of you will be like, well, how do I know all of that? Thankfully, you live in America. There's some awesome study Bibles out there that can give this to you in a paragraph or two. Uh, and I could name a whole bunch. I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing one thing over another. I mean, there, there are really some excellent uh, study Bibles that you can actually fit in your bag. You know, you don't have to have this whole library thing. It's, that give you good background notes on each, on each little book, okay? Phase two. The next thing that follows this is Interpretation. Okay, so now that we know what's going on, now that we've kind of dug into the occasion or the purpose of the historical me, uh, setting and, and maybe a cultural meaning, which, by the way, let me, let me I was going to skip this, but this is kind of fun. Luke 7, verse 33 ver, to verse 35, Jesus is talking about himself, and he says uh, in verse 34, the Son of Man, talking about himself, came eating and drinking, and you said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, I don't know what your impression is, but you've probably heard this verse. Oh, you see, Jesus' reputation was of a frat boy. Jesus, and you know, he, he was kind of this party guy. Mm, is that really what it means? You know, glutton that, that, that they accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard? Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town, and they shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Could it be that when they were accusing Jesus of being those things... They were doing the equivalent of bringing him before the elders and saying, this guy is rebelling against what Moses taught. This guy is opposing or going against our traditions. We're going to effectively cast him out by calling him a glutton and a drunk group. Maybe. Okay, just a little, you know. Some of these cultural things need to be dug up. Phase two, interpretation. Let's go to this. What did this mean for them? I, I love emphasizing that the question is not What does this mean uh, to you <laughs> well, First, you'll, you'll get there But the first question is What did this mean for them How did they hear it When this was said God spoke to these Bible writers To specific people And so how, how, how did those listeners hear it I grew up in a youth group Where I had people tell me That the Bible is God's love letter to me And I all thought that was really nice and sweet Until I read like Ezekiel you know, I like, never heard of a love letter like that you know? And you've got to realize that the Bible is written for us, but it wasn't first written to you. So how did those first hearers kind of hear it? What did it mean for them? So here's some tips. Pay, give special attention to what God says about the people and events in the story. Remember that God, of course, is the lead character in, in his own story. And so rather than just lift up a verse or a verse here or a verse there, we want to know, well, what did God say about that or what... What, what do we, what do we, how do we compare this? Look for aberrations of a norm or breaks from an established pattern. Does it, should, it, should we pay attention when Jesus announces, you have heard it said, da-da-da-da-da, but now I say unto you, should we pay attention? Would that have been striking to his listeners when he said that? Absolutely. Because they, all they had heard was the way Moses had taught. So we're looking for, for that, the, the, the breaking of a pattern. You can look here, study how an author uses particular words. And finally, maybe the most simple thing is just use Scripture to interpret Scripture. If we want to know how, a certain, how, we want to, how Israel might have heard these words, we need to know what, what else Israel said about this issue. Why was it so offensive in John 6 when Jesus said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no part of the kingdom. Of God. Why, was, why, would, why did the whole crowd leave at that point? Because in, to a Jew, they had been raised on Leviticus that says you don't even eat an animal that still has blood in it. You drain the blood of everything. Kosher meat is meat that has the that has the, the, the throat of the animal slit before they eat it. Not to be gross, sorry, but you know the the beef was less flavorful because it didn't have that in it. So when Jesus comes up and says, "Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood," you they're thinking, "What? You're crazy. You're crazy." it may sound offensive to us, but how much more offensive did it sound to them? People always bring up the issue of, well, what about slavery in the New Testament? I mean, didn't these New Testament writers, they, it seems like, you know, there was slavery there and they didn't, you know. I think what you have to recognize is, again, if you look at it in comparison to where we are as a society and a culture, that looks primitive. But if you compare Paul's words about slavery compared, set against his culture, it was pretty revolutionary. When Paul writes to Philemon and says, Look, your runaway slave, Onesimus, is coming back. Welcome him as a brother, not as a slave. Don't make him work for you even though he ran away from you. Embrace him as a brother in the household of God. To us, that's like, well, yeah. But to them in the first century, that was like, are you serious? So we have to try to... It's the same thing with a lot of the stuff about women. I think we, we read these passages. They go, oh, the, the Bible, isn't it so pejorative towards women? Set against its own day, it wasn't. Set against its own day, it was quite a bit uh, dignifying to women. To say that it was women who went to the tomb and saw the empty tomb first. To say that it was women that Paul found in the city and they helped him start his church. To say those things was quite dignifying, set against the culture of their day. And what I want us to realize is they operated within a complex web of cultural and social dynamics that they couldn't completely change. But within that context, what did they say? That's what you have to ask yourself. Does that make sense? It's the same thing with us. Some, someday, somebody's going to look back at us and say, why were all you Christians championing capitalism so much? So, well, it's free markets. And, you know. and someday, someone will say, yeah, but it oppressed the poor, and it did this. And how come you didn't do anything to fight that? And we'll say, I don't know. But maybe in the end, we've got to operate within this complex web that we can't hope to change all of it, but what do we say in the midst of it, the same way that Paul and the early apostles said things about slavery and about women that were the equivalent of detonating a massive cultural bomb in the midst of their day. Does that make sense? They did things that were quite revolutionary. Phase three, oh, wait, sorry, questions here to ask yourself. Why is this story included What's the author's point? What are they saying next? All sorts of things that help us kind of understand what it meant for them. The last phase here, we've got observation, we've got interpretation, and here we are here with application. What, this, what does this mean for me? Here again, the question is not what does this mean to me. I love that. You know, you've know, been in a Bible study, you sit around, you read a it. What does this mean to you? Well, I think it means... And there's always that one dude, you know, 20 minutes later, you you see what I'm saying? And the rest of you are like, you know, (laughs) I don't want to know what it means to you. I want to know what it means for you. How does this challenge you? How does this confront you? So we've talked about saying, okay, look, we want to enter the story. But this is the moment where we say, let the story enter us. Let it begin to mess with you. And this is maybe the biggest problem I have with with the idea of, oh, I'm going to open up my Bible and get a nugget out of it today. Because I think it inadvertently puts us in this position as standing over the Bible. And I kind of stand over it and I'm going to pull this here. And maybe what we need to remember is we're supposed to stand under it. That we're supposed to say, okay, as I enter the story and as I see what's going on and as I try to find out what they, how they heard these words when they, when they were first said, then God, let me recognize, what does this mean now for me? How are things supposed to be different? James 1, verse 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I had a professor at college who said, we read the Bible to know God and to be his people. I want, I, I want to see God at work in this story, and then I want to learn how to continue the story as his people, as the people of God. Some of the things that might be helpful here is to, to, to ask yourself, is this text, is this story, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive? In other words, just because it happened doesn't mean we're supposed to keep doing it this way. My favorite example of this is the early church. Everybody talks so glowingly about the early church. Oh, if we could return to the early church. You, you mean that one in Corinth where that dude was sleeping with his dad's girlfriend? You mean that one? You, you, you mean that other one where they were all eating the communion and leave because they were hungry? You, you mean the one that Jesus rebuked in Revelation, the, the different seven churches? You, you mean that early church? There's no glorified, glorious church here. It's all flawed. So sometimes we read these stories and we say, okay, now is this meant to be prescriptive? Are we supposed to then, you know, next time you, know, you, know, next time you have an enemy, go out and find five stones and put it in a... You know, are the five stones metaphors? You know, are they supposed to symbolize something? I think if we believe that every passage of scripture is prescriptive, is meant to prescribe certain behavior, then we have no choice but to start allegorizing everything and spiritualizing it. Well, maybe Noah's Ark represents this and maybe, you know, and all this stuff. And there was a period of of time in church history where they went off into that and it was like, well, let's just sort of, I don't know, it's all got to speak to us, so let's make it speak to us by making it all allegories. I think it speaks to us as we see God at work in the stories. That's how it speaks to us. But the way, maybe, the best way to let the Scripture enter us is to pray the application of it. Pray the application of Scripture. A while ago, I had a friend who was going through a difficult time. He had had, um, lost a position in, in ministry because of some... Uh, you know just some f- foolish things He was a young guy and uh, But he had s- such a repentant and humble heart And, and uh, we met together every week And we read together the David story We read a chapter a week of, da- of the David story And as we would read it We would say okay How do you think this challenges us How does this Call us to live differently And then we'd say alright Now let's pray that So that it doesn't just stay as information. Okay, let's pray that. Okay, Holy Spirit, we've just read about how David uh, always sought you. We've just read how David stayed humble. We've just read how David responded to correction. Lord, would you make us men that respond to your correction? See that? You're praying this application, so it's, it's not just, well, I, I figured out what it means. Well, great. Now Let the Holy Spirit work its way, work it inside you. Work, let the scripture work its way inside you. Some questions here. How does this principle contradict my culture? How does this reveal Jesus' What areas in my heart need to be reshaped by this? Now that I've seen this, now that I've heard this, what about my life needs to be reshaped by this? What can I do and respond? How do I respond now to this? What's some action to take? What might the Spirit be leading us to do? That's it. As we wrap this up tonight, <laughs> I want us to know that these stories that we read of men and women in Scripture are not given to us so that we can say, now live up to that. Which one? You want me to live up to Noah the drunk? David the murderer? Who do you want me to, which story should I live up to? These stories are, are not given to us of heroes, as heroes, so that we can say, okay, I've got to now imitate this and try to live up to these stories. Oh, if only I could be like these guys. The only one in there is Jesus. The rest of those guys are included because they're part of Jesus' story. That all the scripture speaks of Jesus. That all the worst and the best in some way help us anticipate Jesus. That David, Israel's best king, who still couldn't get it right, made us long for the perfect king, Jesus that all of it is meant to point ahead or point back to Jesus. I think what it also means is there's room for your story. There's room for my story. My favorite illustration of this is the genealogy in Matthew 1. Jewish genealogies don't typically include women. Matthew's does. Matthew's gospel, it's traditionally supposed was written to a Jewish audience. There's lots more Old Testament quotes in Matthew's gospel than the other gospels. It's Matthew's genealogy is the one that traces back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, whereas else Luke's traces back to Adam, the first human. Matthew's clearly writing to people who, have, who share his Jewish context. And so he mentions four women. Why? Who are these women They're all women You could say With a shady past With a questionable moment in their story Tamar Ruth Bathsheba Rahab (laughs) Could it be that Matthew does that Because what's coming in Matthew 2 The story of another woman With a questionable past not really questionable, but just to those around her, questionable. Could it be that Matthew's setting up his audience to say, are you kidding me? Are you going to discount Jesus as the Messiah that the prophet spoke of because you're unsure if his mother was pregnant out of wedlock? Do you not remember the other four women in our story that were somehow wrapped in? Church, the gospel is this. Your story was meant to be part of God's story. It was. And the longer we insist on writing our own chapters and taking the pen and say, I'm going to do it this way, the worse it gets. But the sooner we say, okay, God, it's been a pretty grisly story up until this point. It's been pretty awful. Would I surrender it to you? Would you somehow weave my story into the Jesus story? I believe God says, that's what I've been doing for thousands of years. How do you think i found a way to weave Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and Bathsheba into the Jesus story? How'd they make their way in to the gospel story of Jesus? It's because that's what God does. He takes our stained, ruined stories and says, come on. Let me make you part of the grandest story of all. Let's pray. loving Father, thank you that before we were, you were. You set the world in motion. Before the foundations of the world, you knew your Son was going to come to redeem God, we want to be led by your spirit. We want your spirit to speak to us, to speak to us through your word. Help us to see the broad strokes of your story. And help us to surrender our stories to you. Each time we open up your word, whether we get a nugget of truth out of it or not, let us see something of who who you are. How you've always been at work on the earth. How you've always been at work through your people. How grateful we are that we get to be your people. How grateful we are that we get to belong to you. We love you, Lord. Make us part of the Jesus story. We surrender to you. Take our pain and make it somehow part of your story of crucifixion. Take our sorrows, our disappointments, our heartaches and make it somehow part of our cross story, so that as we experience resurrection, we experience your life coming alive in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.